You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora, we all come from somewhere else. This is the Plastic Podcast minicast, the first part of my interview with Craig Jordan Baker. We're lucky to get our guest today. Not only is Craig Jordan Baker a lecturer in creative writing at Brighton University, not only is he a third-generation member of the diaspora, not only is he a writer who has had his work published in Firefly, Potluck and Text magazines, he's also got his debut novel, The Nicullians, being launched by Epoch Press on the very day of this broadcast. That's how on the pulse we are here at the Plastic Podcasts. Now please note, this podcast does contain instances of strong language, but only instances. Now with all this activity... The first question I need to ask Craig is, how are you doing? I am doing very well. I've just been um, out doing some early morning Morris dancing and I'm feeling uh, refreshed and raring to go. Yes. Um, so, I mean, so, well, let, let's, let's dive briefly into that. Folk traditions then. Are, are you a bit of a folky, would you say? I am increasingly uh, a folky. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I play the Bauron at, um, at a folk session. Um, I, I, I love to sing. Um, so I dance, uh, I, I, I Morris dance as well. So, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, increasingly becoming a folky. Unfortunately, I can't grow a beard and that's sort of like i think a bit of a prerequisite um but i'm 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 kind of challenged in the beard area but if you can if you can stick one finger in one ear and grow an aaron jumper you should be fine oh well then that's okay yeah i think i can certainly manage that so these are kind of exciting times for you really aren't they they are a lots a lot's happening i mean after a lot not happening with lockdown etc there's um there's a lot going on of course for me as an academic there's the start of the new year but there's also of course the the launch of the book which has been a long time a long time in coming um you mentioned when we did the preamble here that you thought um, that two terrible things might happen over the course of this year the end of the world and you not getting your novel published yeah exactly those, those two things i'm really really uh, I'm, and i'm really glad both haven't happened so uh, effectively 2020 for me is turning out to be a rather super year for those of us that either a dream of aspire to or have no knowledge of what novel writing is about i mean it's like uh, once you've actually written and done your redrafts and so forth just how much time does it take to actually get it from i don't know your screen to published page well um so for, uh, so i was fortunate where um in in my route where I've, I've been writing for a long time and um i was at a reading where i read a short story um which actually turned out to be a chapter of one of um of the novel and um at the at this reading was uh sean campbell uh, the um, head of Epoch Press, and he was really enthusiastic about what he heard, and he said, um, "I think this is a novel." And I and I had scratched my head a little bit and thought, "Oh, it, it, could he be right?" And um, he was right. And so it was. This novel was a fairly, I would say, compared to the experiences of a lot of writers who are trying to get their work out there, was um was blissfully straightforward i was tapped up by sean and um and i got on writing the thing and it, it did take um a fair old while um but certainly less than a year um so i think i've been really really lucky so did you ever see yourself as just being uh, as being a, a short story writer and academic primarily before that well oh, well not well not even that i once told my mother that she couldn't expect much out of me and i would be a bum and at best a poetic bum so um so i've certainly i've certainly managed to be a poetic bum so uh, she should be pleased with that um but uh i i, I was working on a novel um uh, called of islands um uh, for several years before this novel um the Nakulians ca uh, came out um and and um that's a much longer and much more kind of complex novel that i don't think i had the skill at that point
point to write. So now with the experience I've gained with writing this novel, I'm coming back to um, that project and I'm reworking it. And hopefully in the next few years, there'll be number two uh, in the pipe. Ah, you see a small family of books. Yes, yes. Was your home when you were young, was it a, a place where a lot of the family gathered together? Was it a, a hub? A family activity? Um, it was. It changed actually. I, I think that I really noticed a, a big change in um, my. So I come from uh, a, a council estate, a working class uh, community on the east side of Southampton, um, called Thornhill. And I remember um, when I was a kid, there was a kind of sport, um, and it was very, you know, um, it was a strange kind of sport. And it was when the kids of the street would go out, you know, play with one another, there'd be a bit of rough and tumble, and um, they'd get into a conflict. And then they'd run home, tell their mum, and then mothers would come out onto their stoops and scream down the end of the road and call out the opposing child's mother, you know, Sandra, get out here. And then they'd have a great big um, Barney on the street and all the other mothers of the street would come out and enjoy this, um, enjoy this kind of vocal duel. Um, and that's one way in which um, <laughs> um, there, we had uh, a lot of uh, people talking to us and engaging with us. Um, but in terms of the family itself, um, my mother came from a very large family. So there were lots of um, aunts and uncles popping in, popping out. Um, and when I was um, a child, my family started to foster. So we had a lot of children um, that we looked after um, coming in, sometimes just for a weekend. And um, on one occasion, we had um, uh, a six-week-old baby um, delivered to us by social services, and he became my brother for 18 months before he was adopted. So lots of, lots of different kinds of <laughs> um, things happening in the house. And do you miss that? No, no, I, no, I can't, I can't say I do, but I'm really glad I had that um, early experience of, of caring for children. Um, I think that's, um, that's actually guided me to not to want to have children. And not that I didn't like it, um, but I, I kind of learned what it kind of, some of the stresses and some of the difficulties of being a parent, and they are, uh, and they are as you may be aware, um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's very demanding. Um, but I'm glad I had that caring experience. I think it taught me a lot about myself and what I wanted. And, um, and of course, you're helping children that are in often really, really difficult situations. So I think you know, foster caring is a great thing to do. So before we look at the, the kind of longer family history, I'd, I'd say, you, I mean, you're a, you're, you're, you're a, you're a lad on, on the east side of um, Southampton on a council estate, and then you decide that you're going to be a poetic bun. Um, were you an odd child? Yes, and I think I benefited from having a mother that was rabidly loyal and protective of my oddness. Um, uh, and I think if not for that, I would have had a much more um, difficult and miserable uh, time. Um, so, uh, yes, I was an odd child. I spoke very fast. I, um, I had a... a rather large vocabulary and I like to use it to the annoyance of, of my family and those around me. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy the classic sport of beating the shit out of each other, which was a kind of standing um, uh, thing that one did when I was growing up. I remember the constant conversations in primary school about who was harder and, and you had to kind of sort out a, a pecking order. And then there was another league, which was whose dad was hardest. Now there was a difficulty here because you could kind of prove who was hardest by fighting another boy, but you couldn't really, or it was very difficult to kind of meander your dads into having a fight with one another. So we just had to imagine whose dad was harder. Um, and this was something I remember being a constant 
um, topic of conversation that often led to fights. And I remember absolutely hating it and, um, and wanting to just get away from it, but having no other option, but to kind of participate. And so, um, for those, for lots of reasons, I was I was an odd child, um, and I think that oddness um, led actually to my interest in Irish literature, culture, um, and and history actually. And I think it was through feeling odd and not like my peers that I um that I came to kind of uh, start to look in different directions. And what I mean by that is I I remember going into I must have been in year seven I think, and I went into the school library and I said I'd like to read some Irish writers please and um, the librarian um, scuttled off um, and came back with Oscar Wilde and Seamus Heaney and um, and I read I remember it was Death of a Naturalist and um, and the collection Wintering Out and I remember devouring those two collections of Heaney and being utterly transported into a world of of uh, musical sensitivity that I hadn't hitherto experienced. And it was really, it really was a transformative uh, experience. I also um, ended up reading lots of work that I actually didn't enjoy. And I think this is something that's been really important for me. I started to engage with works because they were um, in a sense, Irish works. And, and I was trying to understand, you know, what, it, what, what you know what this what this kind of Irish literary culture was and I ended up reading things that I at the time really hated things like um the plow and the stars um things like playboy and the uh, playboy of the western world that I didn't really get as a young teenager at all and but it for, it formed the groundwork of being okay with not getting something and I think people are really hung up and I think when people approach art, especially people are really hung up on not getting something and they get really upset and feel really insulted if they experience artworks, they don't have the context for the knowledge for sometimes and they blame the artist or they blame someone trying to be snooty. And I think because I had that quite early experience of reading the plow and the stars and going, what the is happening and I'd have to then go off and read a bit about, you know, the, the, the rising and, and, you know, and the four fire or whatever and um and to kind of understand what was going on that um that difficulty made me realize that if you if you explore the context more broadly sometimes art can art can then um be illuminated for you and um it's very important to understand the context of a work of art in order to appreciate what what it can offer you so going to your own context there you say that you um um you investigated irish writing um and you're what third generation yeah, yeah. So my grandfather um, was from Banbridge in County Down, um, and I would uh, and I would often, you know, sit around uh, the table um, at his house on a Sunday afternoon and ask him about Ireland. So, in some sense, I think I was looking for a mythic um, place that wasn't boring. Uh, council estate England, and I kind of got that. Um, my, my, you know, because my grandfather had a very um, mixed and interesting background um to, to say uh, to say the least some of that's found its way into the novel i think there's there's one uh chapter um called the adventures of nandad and Kulian, which is um a dialogue between um a grandson and uh, and the grandfather and telling his story of um effectively emigration or um uh, uh, to to england and that's a much um uh bloated and uh, kind of like highfalutin version of some of the things that I heard uh, when I was a kid. 
Not only is Craig Jordan Baker a writer, he's also a third-generation member of the diaspora. Before concentrating on his grandfather's crossing from Ireland, I wanted to know more about the rest of his family. So um, my my father's my father's family um, were from uh, were working class Devonshire Devonshire folk who um, who didn't really um, weren't particularly ever really interested in us to put it I would say mildly um, and um, on my grandmother's side so my maternal grandmother she was uh, um, a woman that uh, lived on uh, she was on from Jersey well she lived on Jersey and she was actually um, she was actually in a concentration camp during the Second World War because she was um, taken by the Nazis for spying and something that a lot of people don't know is or forget is that the Channel Islands were occupied by the Nazis the story I was told was that she um, was caught drawing a plane. She was sort of a, a late teenager, caught drawing a plane, and then was taken by um, Nazi officers um, and, and taken to um, Poland and had and ha- was treated relatively well because she was um, at least um, considered nominally Aryan. But she did, um, I think, lose part of her lung due to um, the, the conditions out there and, and getting really bad. Um, respiratory infections and um, I've seen her journal um, from those times in the concentration camps and it's got little bits of German that she learned um, du bist ein Luder you are a bastard I remember reading um, and um, and uh, you know she had a really really tough time um, and then she came um, then then when she was liberated she came uh, back and met my grandfather in Southampton um, and he had come across cleaning um, and initially was clearing out bomb sites during um, during the Blitz. And he told me a little bit about, um, you know, he alluded to seeing some really rather horrible things in uh, which I imagine were bodies in clearing out bomb sites during the Blitz. But he wasn't an active service person um, during the Second World War, but he was he was in England, um, you know, um, yeah, clearing out bomb sites, he told me. What brought him across? sectarian violence was part of it um i uh he he once said something to me which really really struck me and you might even sort of might even see an element of it in the book where he told i asked him why he came across and he told me very bluntly that the um the protestants cut a hole in my prick and um and i remember being absolutely stunned at this statement and i and i and partly because i was trying to work out the mechanics of it and i started imagining hang on what does my grandfather's prick actually look like (laughs) and um and it was a it was a really rather it was such a stark thing and given without any particular context um and he said no more and so i was left wondering (laughs) this kind of strangely surreal image of well pricks have holes in them don't they I thought, and <laughs> and so I wondered what uh, you know this extra hole might have looked like, um, and so it was a but it was a really kind of macabre and almost kind of surreally comic image that I that I held of me for a long period of time. So your your grandparents have both come from very very traumatic backgrounds. Your your grandmother is is essentially carted off to a concentration camp for purposes of art. She's drawing a plane. So when you decide that you're going to be a, an artist and so forth, is there is there a suspicion? Uh, it's like a, a thing of, that'll get you into trouble. There's a there's a kind of um. I remember my um, my my father's funeral, and I'm at the wake in Eastleigh Working Men's Club. Um, my father was a trackman, and um, you know, works for the work. He was a he he was a lorry driver and a trackman, and um, and I gave the eulogy, uh, and um, one of the hardest things I've ever done, and um. I was in the toilet and I was pissing next to one of my dad's um, colleagues, uh, you know, working class guy from Southampton. And he said, 
Oh, your dad always said you were literary and now I know what he means. And, and that really spoke kind of volumes about, I think a really kind of broad attitude that I experienced where to even use the word literary was a kind of strange word that meant, meant sort of something that was outside of a lot of people's experience. It was viewed with um, suspicion in some ways. Um, I think my mother viewed it with a certain sense of pride without necessarily knowing what a writer was and what my literary aspirations were. She was happy that I was doing that, but she didn't really ask me ever much about it because as happens so often in working class families, when one member of that family is doing something that the others don't know anything about, they just remain silent about it. So if you happen to be an actor and you come from a working class family, well, loads of actors I know saying, yeah, my, my, my parents just don't even ask me about my work, you know, and then the middle class parents are like, oh, so how's it going? How, you know, did you get that job at the Beeb? And um, so I think there's a lot of silence around that which you that which you don't know and i remember so powerfully this guy that i was pissing next to saying you know he always said you were literary and now i know what he meant and i don't know if my dad sort of knew what he meant when he was saying that about me to his work colleagues but it was um it was a, a moment where i i saw the sense of discomfort and and uh and not having anything to say about those other worlds that are outside of your experience it actually links across quite nicely to uh, the the, uh, the the novel itself uh, because I mean the Nicolians is described on the back here and I'm going to read it out just to prove that I can uh, three generations of one family living in a brick house in a line of other brick houses um, this is um, a work which uh, kind of glories in the I suppose the everyday and the working class to a certain extent doesn't it yeah um perhaps it's interesting that you say glories I I, I feel kind of a I feel sort of, I think, it's, I don't know, I see it as more ambivalent, but it certainly is soaked and, um, and drenched in, in that world. Um, uh, and, and, it, and I would like to think that it's, um, it's in no way sentimental. I, I would, I, I'd really like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of, of sentimentality and sententiousness, but, um, but it is, but I do want it to be, um, a kind of reflection and a, not an account, but more of an inquiry into that world, into the, into the way in which um, working, working class families or families pass on um, experiences uh, that they might not even know they're passing on um, through the ways in which your great grandmother might have raised your, your grandfather, you know, and then how your grandfather raises your, your mother. Um, and you know, these are kind of sometimes inheritances, which we, which are are real they're felt they're material i think um but we don't often note them or notice them um and I, I, but they're very powerful things and i think by uh, by engaging with them and thinking about them we can come to understand what it is to be in a family better and also understand what it is to be from a certain kind of place better so it's the thing about home yeah um home is a really strong um, a really strong theme, but it's not, again, it's, I don't think it's home without sentiment. I think it's home without sentiment. I think it's home. It's a, it's an inquiry into home and home can mean a lot of things. Um, I think for some of the characters in the Nakulians, there's, um, uh, Shannon Nakulian, who's a second generation. She kind of views Ireland as this kind of abstract, um, romantic place. And Bernard, um, who's her brother, has absolutely no time for it whatsoever. He even says, you know, it's shit over there. Of course it's shit. That's why they all come over here. And um, he's got a very, very sort of... Um, 
a fairly hostile attitude, um, I think, to anyone that isn't um, English. And he certainly, uh, the character is very, very keen on being English and fitting in um, and has a certain amount of embarrassment for his Irish father, I think. And so it's about it's about the imaginary homes that we create. Um, it's about the, the streets that we live on and those homes. But it's also about how the, a city um, and, uh, and the broader spaces we live in um, can affect us. So the novel isn't just about um, the family, but there are little interludes in the novel where I talk about different aspects of the city. Um, so I talk about the sky, I talk about the parks, I talk about the water in the city, how, um, how, how a city that's built upon two rivers changes how you cross the city, how you engage with it. And, um, and I think that's really important because for me, coming from um, the east side of the city, um, we're separated by, um, by the Itchin River. I always felt on the edge of the city and part of it was having to cross this river. And I always felt that, um, that we, I was far away from what was happening, you know, the center of town, the pubs and clubs, the, you know, the parks and so on. Um, and, and, and I realized later on that, uh, that part of my experience of even growing up was shaped by these really kind of very broad ways in which a city is even planned. And so that's something the book's interested in, in as well. It's about home from that, um, that um, top-down view, the bird's-eye view, and home also from that street level, and home also in that oniric sense, the place of dream, you know, the place we, the homes we dream about that aren't where we are now. And we have to dream about them because otherwise our existence is pretty intolerable. You write about bricks. Mm. And a lot about bricks. I mean, it's like um, looking at the book, the cover is made pretty much of illustrations of brick and also uh, Nandad, um is a bricklayer yes so um sorry just topping up my water here and that that, that will be a relief to anybody just listening to that rather than seeing it <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed power of the power of the podcast um so uh so, so what was what was the bricks bricks um bricks are um this might sound uh well, actually, no, it doesn't sound strange at all. I think works that I like um, have a, what I call a symbolic order. And by that, I mean there's, um, there's something in the work that comes to mean something beyond its physical measure. And so you might imagine a story about, I don't know, a guy that comes from a peach farm and he goes off to the big city, but he always has a peach in his, in his lunch pail and he always eats a peach and it always reminds him of home. Now that's fairly bland, but it's an example of the peach um, functioning as something beyond a simple peach. And in the Nakulians, um, bricks and walls and building um, is, um, is in a sense the symbolic vocabulary of, of, of the work. Um, and Nandad is very au fait, not only just with bricks, but with um, the metaphysics of bricks and what bricks mean and how they reflect personalities and personality types and how different kinds of wall and different kinds of brick bond um, um, reflect different aspects of how we engage with um, the world. So there are two chapters that are named after brick bonds. There's one chapter called English Bond, which is about Bernard's um, uh, sort of um you know a rabid attempt to feel english by being a horrible racist asshole um and um and then there's also another um chapter called common bond which is um about um 
Bernard, as a younger man, first going onto the building sites and trying to deal with this very masculine environment um, in a way that doesn't embarrass or insult his father, who uh, who he, he needs to win the approval of um, in order to become a real a real man and a real you know bricky or a real builder. You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Craig Jordan-Baker. Music by Jack Devaney. The McCullians is published by Epoch Press. Find out more about us by going to the website www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. Alternatively, find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know how. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.